Hey everybody, Chris Fafalius here. If you enjoy One Hit Thunder, which I'm assuming you do considering you're listening to it right now, I want to tell you about another great music podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. It's called Riffs on Riffs. On this season of Riffs on Riffs, hosts Toby Braswell and Joe Watson are breaking down one iconic pop song each week. Everything from Taylor Swift's Cruel Summer to Journey's Don't Stop Believin' to Naughty by Nature's OPP. Each week, they crack open the song, trace its history, decode those cryptic lyrics, and unearth the hidden gems in its musical DNA. Not only do they dive into the song's history, lyrics, and impact, they also go down some fun and oftentimes hilarious rabbit holes. So yeah, if you're a fan of One Hit Thunder, I think you'll also enjoy Riffs on Riffs. So go hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Almost a decade into their formation, a gang of geeky punk rockers started playing with synths and accidentally created the genre of New Wave. Armed with a low-budget video, some satirical lyrics, and a catchy hook, the band exploded with their 1980 single, Whip It. This week, I'm joined by Matt of the band Weedus to discuss Devo and determine if they brought the one-hit thunder or if they stepped on a crick and broke their mama's back. So, Devo, huh? Oh my god, I am so excited that this band was available. Devo is one of those interesting ones. There's a couple bands that we talk about on this show where it's like, yeah, in certain circles they're a one-hit wonder, but then in other circles they are so much more. And I'm going to go ahead and assume that since you play in a band that is kind of like the 90s version of Devo, that you are definitely in that second category where they are so much more than a one-hit wonder to you. <laughs> well, I mean, I am the to be even considered to be compared to Devo is beyond my understanding or uh, frankly belief at all. I, I, that, I but I appreciate that very much. I, I think I guess the beginning answer is yes. I think Devo yeah. is an amazing <laughs> band. Yeah, no, this is like. The reason why I was excited that um, I could talk about these guys, I do just love them generally, but also I think that these guys are a great example of the positive, like they're kind of like a best case scenario, one hit wonder. Yeah, no, I think that that's so, you know, we'll, we'll address this right up front. You're the basis for the band Weedas. Yes. And there's a terminology that I've always used. I don't know if it's a real genre or not. I don't uh-huh. know if I made this up, but I've always classified you guys and Devo in the same genre, which is what I called geek rock, which was like, to me, bands that really encompassed a very like nerdy perspective of the world. You know what I mean? Like, sure. Yeah. And I think that Devo is great for that. Devo was like, when you look at Devo and what they were doing, even like in the seventies, when they were a punk band playing CBGBs, they were the dork 
punk rock band. Absolutely, they were. I mean, they were one of those bands that's like, um, if you're talking about geek rock, it's as a genre. I mean, Devo is on a short list of bands that invented it. You'd be hard pressed to think of too many acts before Devo that were doing exactly that sort of a thing. Certainly yeah. not at that level. I mean, I think the other, um, uh, a good contender for someone of the same era are Talking Heads. That would that would be someone I would say would fall in there. And then like Elvis Costello, not really, but like building that aesthetic of like being that Rivers Cuomo. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, you can definitely see some building blocks in uh, certain artists of that era that led to, I mean, you couldn't even begin to count how many bands that would follow suit of it just in terms of aesthetic, like who they were going for, you know, the target audience for music, like the idea that like you don't have to be the coolest person in the world to do this. Yeah, no, 100%. And Devo was like, I always love this story. I've heard this story before that earlier on in their career, they got booed off stage because they played, was it, is it, jo was it Jocko Homo? What, what the heck is the name of that song? It's called Jocko Homo. Yes. Okay. Jocko Homo. Yeah. Uh, they played it for 30 straight minutes until the crowd <laughs> booed them off stage of just chanting the, are we not men? We are Devo yeah. over and over and over again. Oh my and God. I love that story. I feel like that sums up why this band is so much worthy of more attention than they get by the general populace. It absolutely does. I mean, they're very, um, again, for geek rock, it's interesting because I think when you think of a term like that, you think of meek and kind of, you know, unassuming and, and cause that's, very sort of like you said Rivers Cuomo earlier. And I think of somebody like that who's just like, oh, hey, like, you know, not certainly not someone you'd think of as aggressive. But a lot of what Devo did was very aggressive. They were geeks, but they were also really angry and they had something to say and they were really interested in pissing people off. That's a great example of I mean, even think about that was, I think, one of, if not their first proper single. Yeah. To call yourself like Jocko. That is that's crazy. I think when people think of Devo, they immediately jump to the sound of Whip It, that sure. very, very synth heavy band. But their first album is a punk rock album. Yes, it is very much like a uh, a post punk, like in the same spirit of. And it's funny, again, there's a lot of Talking Heads comparison, which is interesting because, of course, Talking Heads, nobody would ever consider them a, a one hit wonder, although there's a lot in common that like this first talking heads record the first devo record is has very little keyboard on it it's pretty much a really really it's punk rock but it's also very angular and very strange and like weird time signatures and you can hear a lot of uh again future influence coming off of that as well i, I think a good song that i always recommend people off that album if i'm like hey if you want to hear devo at their weirdest i always tell them too much paranoias is like it's just a minute and 38 second panic attack. Like, it's just the most stressful guitar riff. And then there's just the weird breakdown where it's just like the guitar just playing a note over and over again to the point that it feels like the string's about to break. Like, it is a weird 
under two minute song to really sum up what their original sound was. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it is wild. I mean, there's so many great, uh, that first, I, I would tell anybody listening to this right away. If you are not familiar with, are we not men? We are Devo. Um, that record is absolutely wild. Uncontrollable urge, which is the first song on it is amazing. Uh, and the other thing in terms of, you know, like what I was saying earlier about them being like aggressive and stuff, I think the most important, like, stop what you're doing if you haven't seen this and watch them in, I think it was 1978 on Saturday Night Live do their cover of I Can't Get No Satisfaction. (laughs) It is one of the most insane things that you will ever see. And it's so like they have like altered that song and, and weirded it out in a way that feels like aggressive and like, I don't know, it completely flips the the spirit and the meaning of that song in a way that really makes you rethink every, every lyric and what you would think that song to mean. And they're playing in their crazy jumpsuits and they've covered the stage in uh, like black trash bags. And it just looks like they're like in some like intergalactic factory playing this song. It is so incredibly wild. Ladies and gentlemen, Devo. To me, that's like the perfect example of like, that's the first thing to look at to be like, oh, maybe I didn't know really what this band was about. And I think one of the things that's kind of cool about Devo is we're talking about that first album, that Are We Not Men, We Are Devo album, is that they, I haven't done the research for this. I'm pulling this out of my ass, but I'm pretty sure that they will go down as the only one hit wonder to have an album listed on like, the 1000 albums you have to hear before you die. That doesn't actually have their biggest hit. On the big hit album. is not, you, you might be right. <laughs> it, it's a weird thing. And, and uh, yeah, you, you really might be right about that. Cause again, yeah. Are we not men is like at this point, a classic of punk and like the earliest, earliest of, you know, what would be considered new wave. No, it's a word that we haven't used yet, but it really is like a great descriptor for their entire career is avant-garde. Yeah. They did that film, which I think you can watch on YouTube for free now, called uh, The De-Evolution of Man. Yeah. And it's essentially just two or three music videos smashed together. But it is another, like you said, aggressive and challenging and and very, I almost want to use the word arrogant at points. Because it it is a very, like you said, when, when you think of something like geek rock, you think of someone that's meek. And you watch this and Devo kind of comes off as like the seventies version of those Rick and Morty fans that are like, well, you have to be smart to get to here. <laughs> I mean, that's a great analogy. I think that's very, very true. Yeah, no, really exactly. Like this is like, um, proudly not for everybody, you know, and yeah. really like trying to make you question it's yeah, it's very artistic and very much like, um, in the earliest records, there's, these are on Spotify. They made uh, two, um, there's two records called Hardcore Devo that are essentially their demos from 1974. Before they ever made a record, they were just, um, they went to college together. They were at uh, Kent State in Ohio. 
and they made these demos. And you can hear there, especially, it's very much like an art rock or a performance art type thing. And of course, they always kept the performance art with their weird costumes, kind of crazy imagery and what they did. But you go back to that and it is like, it's still very punk in spirit, but my God, because uh, Jocko Homo is on there and um, their like satisfaction is, is goes back that far. But man, it, it is the last thing you would expect to hear those guys wind up having a pop hit. <laughs> it yeah. is, it's beyond belief. Cause they are like, like you mentioned, like the, the different, the, the, the performance art of it all. And like, that's the thing I don't think a lot of people even understand is like, when people think of Devo, people who haven't listened to anything from Devo and haven't dove into their background, yeah, their image of Devo is the red discs and the big black, you know, turtlenecks. The turtlenecks, but like, yeah, yeah. It feels, if you really go through it, every one of their albums, there's a different aesthetic, there's a different outfit, there's a different uniform, yeah, and it and it feels like different eras. Like, you listen to it and it's like, okay, this is their synth era, this is their rock era, this is their, like, blending of the two sounds era. Yeah. And the, the way that that all sticks together and the way that they have their backstory of what is Devo and this concept of de-evolution and all that, really, this might be the only time that anyone makes this comparison, but, like... Devo and Guar are not that far off in the same like <laughs> conceptual beginning. Like people meeting in college doing this weird performance music, but like tying it up in this bow of of like art rock. I think that's great. That's very, very true. Yeah. It's it, like started with a concept, you can tell, and then the music was sort of dictated by the concept, not the other way around, you know? Just from this cool the eighties had this cool era, and I love that we've seen it it's happening in real time in our lives of these guys from these weird new wave bands who end up becoming like the most important composers now in our like current landscape. You know what oh I mean? Oh my God. Like, yeah. I, I did a little list here of, cause I, I knew. So Mark Mothersbaugh, who's the, uh, the kind of front man of Devo, it's really two guys who run Devo, but he, uh, as you probably know, like went on to compose like film and TV scores and his resume is shocking. <laughs> he has done so much. I, I made a really quick list just for, for uh, people who are curious. He has done um, the scores for, if you go to TV, he did Pee Wee's Playhouse. He did Rugrats, uh, Rocket Power, Clifford the Big Red Dog, Big Love, Enlightened, The Last Man on Earth, uh, and Disenchantment most recently. For movies, he did Happy Gilmore, Bottle Rocket, Dead Man on Campus, Rushmore, Drop Dead Gorgeous, The Life Aquatic, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, all of the Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs movies, 21 Jump Street, 22 Jump Street, the Lego movies, Thor Ragnarok. Um, he also was a uh, composer for Crash Bandicoot, the video game, and Jack and Dexter, the video game. He's been doing that like just as a side gig since the 80s. It's crazy. And that's one of those things where you also look at that and it's like, if you think about those theme songs and you think about those soundtracks, it absolutely makes sense in totally. the same way in the same way that you would like listen to old oingo boingo and then listen to the movies that like danny elfman scores and it's like no this totally like the a to b is very apparent because think about it's very clear like the time i'm not like the the most logical person with music i i wish i could read it and understand it uh -huh. better than i actually <laughs> do which is why i talk about it instead of play it but like rugrats for a kid's cartoon theme song is in such a weird time signature compared to like a normal kid's show cartoon theme song. It's very strange and it's perfect. I mean, it's funny. Like, I feel like there's a tremendous 
I mean, how many people right now could, despite having not seen that in decades, could sing back the Rugrats theme song right now? Everybody knows that. It's like an iconic piece of music. And that's to do that. You know, the other thing that I saw that he did that I thought was interesting, and this is going to be hard to describe, and only a certain generation of people are going to know this, but I guess this is in the late 90s, early 2000s. There was that whole series of advertisements, the I'm a Mac, I'm a PC commercials. You remember yeah. these? Yeah, yeah. He did the music for those. Which and I don't remember an iconic theme song. For I was going to say, you don't remember it, <laughs> but if you look it up, the, the name of the piece, if you it's on YouTube. If you look up Mark Mothersbaugh and the song, it's great. It's a 30 second little instrumental piece of music and it is called Having Trouble Sneezing. <laughs> But if you look it up and you listen to it, you will instantly remember that little piece of music. And from a writing perspective and from like to create something that memorable in a 30 second instrumental, something that can like serve that much of a purpose, whether it's the Rugrats theme song or a commercial thing or, you know, whatever, like any of these themes that he did. That is so hard. That's a real um, hard to describe maybe to people who aren't as in the music world, like to, to make your point that quickly and with so little is very, very, very challenging. And he's clearly really good at that. Well, and I think, again, to compare him to another one of his peers, and this is something that I, I learned. I was never a big new wave fan in high school. Mm-hmm. And then like college happened and I suddenly had such a deep appreciation for it. And you look at how much of our world musically or how much of our life is like shaped a lot of time by these dudes who are just in these weird new wave bands in the eighties. And another one that pops in my mind is Thomas Dolby. Oh yeah. Who created the ringtone. Like, yes. That's exactly right. He did. He did. Like, like that. Like yeah. that you've, you had for years when you couldn't change it to anything else. Like that was created by the, she blinded me with science guy. Another, another fun. One of those is, Brian Eno, who is a famous producer who actually produced the first Devo record, he was very involved in the new wave scene, composed the startup music for Windows 95. <laughs> I know. And I, you just had to say it and I heard it. And head. you heard it in your head, right? Like <laughs> it, it's funny. And I think it goes back to a, another point here, which was like, this was in music, this period of like, we'll say like late seventies into the mid eighties where new wave quote unquote was very much a thing was a really great a really great time for people to be extremely creative and original. Yeah. I feel like I feel like that's not always the case in music where people are not always rewarded for originality. Sometimes what people want is the same thing that they've they know that they want, but then there's these stretches of time where people are just soaking up whatever new and exciting thing they can possibly get. And that period really, really awarded the public, really rewarded people for being bold. Well, and I think that the 80s is one of those cool times. New Wave is one of those interesting genres because it's kind of the same as like, I would say New Wave falls in the same category as like alternative rock, where it's like a genre that doesn't really say anything because there's so many different sounds encompassed in that genre. Yeah, it's very much like an umbrella for a lot of stuff. Yeah, because New Wave, I feel like, can at least break into two categories. And I feel like it's two categories that branch into to future genres, essentially, is that you had like one half of New Wave, which was very like the Duran Durans and stuff, where it was very heavy on the pop side of things and yeah. was like building the pathway to like what would become like boy bands and, and stuff like that. And then you have the other side that's like, the bands coming out of the CBGB's world 
and just getting a just poppy enough to get on the radio and kind of going into more of like our lane, which is like the pop punk bands that we fell in love with in the 90s, where it's like, no, you can be aggressive and challenging and still have hooks. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of huge. Like New Wave really shaped that idea that like you can be punk and be catchy simultaneously. Exactly. Have to have 45 second aggressive songs, and that's the only way to be a punk band. Exactly. I'm not, you know, I don't know a d- exact definition or what people would say it is, but I'm not, I'm not looking at one. But for me, that's, I've always thought that new wave as a blanket term is representative of the idea that like we can be weird, we can be experimental, we can be aggressive, and we can still write a catchy song. That's the idea is like we can we can do all of this stuff like there's all this like punk rock energy. There's all this art rock energy. There's all of these experimental ideas in, uh, you know, also like technology is starting to explode and synthesizers are becoming a thing and computers and music is a brand new idea. And like we can do all of that, but we can still make a song with a a chorus that people will want to sing along and can get played on the radio. Like we can be just we can be weird, but just fun enough that it'll work you know, that it'll be actually like palatable to the masses. And I feel like this is a good time to enter into the hit uh, (laughs) and talk about Whip It. You know what I mean? Like this song, which I think the first time I heard it was probably to sell Cool Whip. But (laughs) (laughs) yes. Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalist. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like such a strange song and i remember the first time that i saw the music video i was like i could have made that like it is (laughs) it is one of the cheapest videos it's one of the weirdest videos it is just such a weirdly catchy song with like that that bass line and again not that much not as synth heavy as devo would become there's a lot of other instrumentation Yeah. No, there's still, you can really hear here, there's keyboards involved in this track, but they're still like a guitar band. Um, This is like the the riff of this song is a guitar and a bass riff. It's a really interesting track because it's a weird piece of music. It's very hooky and you can get why it was an immediate success. 
But it's also very strange. They they have this weird thing that they do where everything has like, I think it's a part of their aesthetic and the whole like de-evolution thing where everything is very kind of like herky-jerky and uh, angular. And there's some weird like little, like not a time signature change, but they drop bars in this song and they change the meter a little bit to make things kind of feel disjointed and strange. And, you know, maybe that fits the lyric of the whip, like you're whipping through uh, changes in the song. Yeah, it's very hard to do that, to have kind of like those odd elements in there and still have it be so incredibly catchy and memorable. And this song is so catchy. You know, I'm looking at their their U.S. chart performance and it peaked at 14. Uh, it was the only top 40 song for them. At 43 was their only other top 100 hit, which is Working in the Coal Mine, which is a fine song, but it is not even like top five, I think, memorable devos certainly not certainly not no i i know that they um coming off of this hit the label was or their you know their record label was like oh great we're just going to keep doing more of it and they never really found that exact you know maybe this you know to a degree in their career it was like a little bit of a fluke that this wound up catching on the way that it actually did because if you go through their catalog it's not like they ever they evolved and they grew as a band and they changed their sound a little bit but they never attempted a um you know, a lot of bands have that record. We're like, oh, here's the one where they really tried to kind of like sell out and do with the, well, you know, what the uh, try to make another hit. Yeah. But I mean, there's the example, nothing really like that. The example I always use for what you're describing is like Sugar Ray. You know what I mean? Yes. Like you there listen you to Sugar Ray's first two albums and it's a very like new metal esque band. But like the song Fly hits and then the very next record is like. 10 songs that sound like fly exactly exactly <laughs> and there's nothing really like i don't inherently have a problem Make with that, that. money <laughs> oh yeah exactly i mean if you find something that works and you want to follow the thing that works man, by all means go for it i mean i think there's also something to be said about like when did sugar ray start it's something that's very bad i think a lot of time in the punk genre and the pop punk genre is like this weird need for 40 year olds to still sing the songs that they wrote when they were 17 and only right. make that music. It's sure. like, no, let them mature. Like let them do their weird indie rock album. Let them like. Absolutely. Grow. Absolutely. I am certainly not listening to the same music that I was listening to when I was 17 anymore. Like, no, no, it's crazy. It's been interesting. I don't want to go too off topic here, but it's been a fascinating thing in like the indie rock world lately where seeing all of these bands that so clearly have great influence from the pop punk acts like Blink-182 and Green Day and, um, you know, and Newfound Glory and stuff like that. Because for a long time, I always felt like they were very not like, despite the fact that clearly like millions and millions of people grew up on those records, it was at least in the indie, you know, cool music world, it was not considered cool to say that you liked that stuff for at least the longest time I could tell. And now finally, I feel like there's some bands that are starting to be like, yeah, you know what? That's the stuff that made me who I am. And now I'm going to like, I'm older than that and I'm taking that influence and I'm putting it into a new context. I mean, even those bands, you heard them you know, like grow and evolve in their sound over the years. And I love taking those influences and like, again, putting an older spin on them as we all get older. There's nothing wrong with that. No, not at all. I think that there's something great about when you hit a certain point and it's definitely around maybe slightly after college. Uh, I would say like my 30s was when I really stopped trying to avoid pop music, quote unquote. Yeah. Like so much of like, you know, in high school, 
I could never admit that I thought that some songs by Britney Spears or the Backstreet Boys <laughs> was catchy. Yes. You know what I mean? But like, I was right there with you in that. It was hard. Yeah. <laughs> but now you look at it and it's like, no, man, like, I think it's when you realize how hard it is to really write a truly earwormy song. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, man, that's a real art. Like, it's a real oh, yeah. skill. And then to do it time and time again, even if it's someone else writing those songs, it's still a skill that someone did it. <laughs> Absolutely. A song's a song. I mean, you can be mad at the process that leads to certain songs and the way that they're delivered, and that's totally fine. But yeah, a good song's a good song. It really doesn't... Generally speaking, a great song will be great no matter who's performing it or you know what the medium is that you're hearing it. Exactly. Nothing's yeah. going to stop me from singing along to Always Be My Baby at the top of my lungs <laughs> when I hear it. Agreed. The other thing that's kind of crazy as I'm like looking at some of my notes for Devo is... The fact that they knocked out five records in five years, which I mean, obviously that time period was a very different time period where you had to always be recording and ready for the next thing. And there wasn't a lot of delay between albums, but to have five albums that are so dramatically different is is a really cool feat. And I'm obviously not comparing them to this band, but like the only other bands I could think of that had that much of a sound change over such a short period of time is when you think about like, how many records the Beatles put out in such a small period of time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what I mean, like it's a lot of, because most people, like you said, they're going to find the sound that works and they're going to stay in that lane and ride it. Oh yeah, for <laughs> sure. For sure. That's the, you know, that's, I mean, there's a lot of pressure to do that as well. If you're like in the music industry and you have labels and management and all that stuff. Yeah. They just want, they want you to, to, if they find the thing that works, they're like, well, great, we did it. <laughs> Keep going. Don't stop now. <laughs> I don't think that there's an accident that the album after Whip It has a song on it called We're Through Being Cool. Like, I feel yes. like it's another example of that band being very, very aware of what they are, who they are, and like what their career is supposed to be. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, no, they I I think that they were um, and I've I read little bits about this from them as well. I think that they were the sort of act that they found a lot of that huge success to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, it put them in positions that they were like, wow, this is not really what we were shooting for. And, you know, suddenly you're, you're on, you know, weird TV shows and getting played at. Um, it's interesting how like the back to, you know, to whip it specific again for a minute is um, the the lyric getting confused and, and misunderstood. So like this was interesting to me because I never really looked into this. So when the song came out, it was initially thought to be sort of like that the whippet thing was supposed to be sort of sexual and that this was like a discreet like innuendo of you know some sort of like sexual you know behavior and they heard that and they that was not what it was written about at all but they loved it which was a part of why they made the video the way that it was because <laughs> that was not their initial intention at all for people who don't know the video the video for whippet involves these like four um like very like cowboy looking, like, you know, Western American guys standing around drinking beer and watching the singer of Devo cracking a whip towards a woman. And when he like hits her with the whip, it doesn't hurt her, but it removes an article of clothing. Uh, so many great stories here. There's one where they actually said that that, if you can believe it, was based on a true story. <laughs> <laughs> that they heard a story of a stuntman. I think it was a stuntman from Hollywood who had retired and he got a ranch with his wife. And that was a thing he used to be like the guy who worked the whip on the movie sets. And that was a thing he did like as a trick is he could actually hit you with a whip so close that he could remove a piece of your clothing without hurting you. 
and and the idea of him moving to a ranch with his with his wife to just like do that they thought that was so funny and on top of that it was also supposed to be they were kind of satirizing sort of like conservative like middle american values of all these people gathered around to watch this like insane thing happen on their ranch so that was part of it but then the the actual meaning of the lyrics to the song like you know when a problem comes along you must whip it the initial idea of it was it was uh, supposed to be a it was a satire about capitalist can-do cliches. Yeah. Supposed to be this idea of like American optimism, the idea that like if something's wrong with your life, whip it, which means nothing. It has no meaning behind it at all, but it's this idea of gathering everyone around this idea of like everything's going to be okay, all you have to do is this. But that is just completely fabricated nonsense designed to make people feel better. Yeah, it's almost like... Because you have to also have to think about, again, like they are... It, uh, all things considered, they're coming from a punk background. They're definitely got a political slant at yes. all times. And we're like leaning right into that Reaganomics moment in time where everything was like cliched feel good center. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's like it totally makes sense that it would be a satirical thing. And I love, I feel like this happens not a lot, but it definitely happens enough where like society creates an entirely different version of what a song is about. Yes. And I love that like artists go one of two ways. Like they just want to go on television and immediately be like, that is not what this is about. How dare you? <laughs> and then there's the other crowd that's like, fuck it. Let's run with it. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I'm so glad Devo fell in that second category. Oh, they did. And it pissed people off, of course, because then then the conservative media were like, oh, this is horrible. And this is like uh, a violation of value. And they were like, this is great. This is exactly like it's perfectly playing into a narrative. Like that's not even what they were trying to say, but it's still backing up the idea. Like now everyone is getting upset about this nonsense song that means nothing, which was the whole point of it in the first place. <laughs> like it's a really, it like couldn't be more prophetic, just the life imitating the art of it all. Like suddenly everyone's getting upset about this song that's designed to mean nothing because they put their own meaning behind it and they don't like it. Yeah, no, and <laughs> I, I think that it, that's the stuff that like you it just makes being a music fan so much more enjoyable oh yeah it's great <laughs> but yeah so this was this was right in the beginning of they started to get more and more and more synthy from this point you know the following album this was on their third album their fourth album you really start to hit that synth sound even harder at that point and then yep. i mean by that point they were all in on the synthesizers they were all in on the moogs they were all in on all of the cool technology that was just coming out in droves during the 80s yeah and kind of i mean in in a lot of ways really were the forefront of that sound that became the 80s sound they really really were yeah you'd be hard-pressed to think again there's not too many bands that were doing that sort of thing before devo really you can think of a couple that were doing it at about the same time but they were they were right at the cutting edge of that yeah well, and I think, and I think it totally makes sense. I would say like, what a shame that they're one hit wonder, but like, it totally makes sense. You know what I mean? Like you look at the bands that influenced the Kurt Cobain, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, would there be a Nirvana without a mud honey? Would there be like, of course, like, absolutely. These, like, like these bands that were doing it first, but like made a bunch of other people go, Oh shit. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 exactly. We can do that. Because that's the thing, right? Is if you can if you can do a if you can be a weird band, but then you pull off this like one hit wonder situation, suddenly now your reach is enormous. 
And some people are going to only hear that one hit and are never going to look any further, but you are going to get the attention of a lot of people who are going to go back and listen to your records. And if your records are good enough, which in Devo's case they are, that's when you really become an influence of as, you know, like wide as you can imagine. The the number of people who, who heard Whip It, who then went back and listened to those Devo records and like the way that that influenced the next, you know, decade of music. That's huge. I'm pretty sure I brought this up. I may have cut it out. I think that a band has a higher chance of not becoming a one hit wonder if their first big hit isn't the lead single on their first album. Yeah. Because you have to think about like, I think that that's like one of the biggest problems with like a space hog is like if your first song, your first big song is on your first record or with the toadies, your first hit, your big song is on your first record. And then it takes you or Weedus. Or yeah, it, it takes you a couple years to <laughs> yeah. make that next album. So much of the musical landscape has changed versus like Green Day, Dookie comes out, but you still have Kerplunk to listen to while you're waiting for Insomnia. Like it yep. helps. It helps to have a back catalog to fall upon. It's true. It really is. It really is true. You can give people like some stuff to explore while they're kind of killing time for you to make your next move. Yeah. And I can't even imagine how you do it in this day and age because like, Back in the 90s, we had low, low attention spans with something. But like now it's probably even. Oh, now forget it. Yeah, no. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like you need to have your first five singles lined up before you do anything. Yeah. Which I think that's why a lot of I mean, I think we are becoming a more single driven industry, which is fine in a few ways. It's basically just we revert it back to what the 50s were. But like, yeah. I miss I miss the album experience. I miss the rec- like of like album stores everywhere. I I'm one of those dudes who will ride and die for my physical media. I'm I'm right there with you. I I yeah. believe in it as well. I mean, I think that some bands will continue to to, you know, carry that torch for a really long time, but it is interesting when you think about how, you know, the music market has always sort of been influenced by the way people digest music. You know, like the album was a response to the fact that the LP was invented where it was like, well, wow, we can fit 45 minutes of music on a single record at this point. So people started writing 45 minutes worth of music. And then the CD was like, Oh, now we can get 72. And so people started to do 72, but now we're at the point where like kind of people are back to singles again. The attention span for more than that is, is really reduced. So people are just, you know, artists are trying to give uh, the audience what they want. Don't know about you, but I'm one of those people who I love, looking at like music as a whole and just seeing like, well, this couldn't have happened if this band didn't exist and this couldn't happen if this didn't exist. And all of a sudden you like build this blueprint where essentially green day couldn't exist if buddy Holly didn't. You know Absolutely, what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's like such a fun, like list of like all of these things had to be popular and hit for like this moment in time. No context is extremely important. And, and the, the time of when something happened is Sometimes a really important thing to factor in when you consider, you know, its significance. Again, if you go back um, and check out that, um, especially those like those early Devo records, that hardcore Devo, it's um, look that up, those demos from 74. And that is some really, really ahead of its time weird music. Like even by today's standards, that would be shockingly weird and to do that in 1974, which is basically the height of classic rock, is crazy. Yeah. They, were, they were really, really going for something very, very different there. And to factor that in and then see how that led them to something like Whip It, 
uh, and then how that was significant enough to really start the process of changing the the landscape, it all kind of makes a lot more sense. Like they were really, they spent a long time honing that vision before they got there. So before we wrap up, uh, normally I don't really have a wrap up segment. We just kind of end on a final thought, but you're the first guest that we've had who's in a band that we've discussed on this show. <laughs> That's so great. I, I do want to address that because I always worry about the show in general. How did like you and the rest of the band take the the weedest episode as far as you know? I'm not sure if anyone but you listened to it, but I think a couple people did. I, I know I talked to about uh, talked to a couple people about it. Uh, I absolutely great. I had no problem with it at all. You know, I think that to be honest, it's great to be there was a lot of thought put into that conversation that Chris Chris and Roger like really gave it some genuine thought and some real like honest consideration for a lot of things. And a lot of the things that they talked about are things that we have talked about plenty over the years. I thought it was very fair, especially considering like, you know, Chris is an old friend of ours. We've toured together uh, and Roger, I don't think I've actually met in person, but he talked about how he had come to a show of ours a couple times. Yeah. I thought that was a very honest and very uh, like genuine take on it. I, 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 it would be hard for me to find too much to be mad about because they were really very, very kind and very complimentary to the song. One of the reasons that I wanted to do this show, and I'm not going to call them out by name, but there's a pretty popular YouTuber who also discusses one hit wonders. And I always find that when most people in this day and age are talking about one hit wonders, it's from such a cynical and negative standpoint. And for me, so many of my favorite bands were bands that I found because I loved the one big hit and I wanted to hear what else they had. And I just think that there's so much great stuff to discover out there. So that's what I really wanted the focus of this to be was people talking about the one hit wonder that really is important to them to get people to check out those back catalogs. So I, I'm glad to hear that, like, there's not bands sitting there like, who the fuck do these guys think they are? <laughs> no, no. Again, I'm I'm very happy. Uh, like I said at the beginning, it's a part of why I was so excited to be able to talk about Devo, because to me... You know, it's interesting because I'm I follow the um you know the Facebook group you guys made for this podcast. That's actually how I first heard about it because Chris added me. And I think that among among people, there is definitely a sense that like one hit wonder is still a very like sort of dirty term and it's derogatory in some way. And I'm sure some people use it in a very derogatory way to this day. But there are very few people like especially in music like this is and I'm not you know tooting my own horn now with Weedus or anything, but honestly like. One hit wonder is not necessarily a terrible thing. And it's in like for many bands, depending on the way that you handle it and the way that it furthers your career, it can be a best case scenario. I really, really think that like for Devo had a huge hit and that gave them enough clout and enough probably just, you know, straight up, you know, money to go out and continue to make the weirdo records they wanted to make. They never had a song that resonated that deeply, but that gave them enough of a fan base that they could continue to get weird and bring those people along with them. If you go see them, I actually went and saw Devo a few years ago and they put on an incredible show. And at this point for them, Whip It is somewhere smack in the middle of the set. And it's great. And it's everyone clearly loves it. But for those audiences, after all these years, they are not there. They're not there because they want to see Devo play Whip It. They're there because they love this band and they want to see as much as they can possibly get from every record of their career. Because we get it like we just it comes up all the time. Like, are you like sad that you're a one hit wonder? And we're just like, no, we're not. Because that song opened up so many doors for us 
and led us to where we are now. I mean, you can take a one hit wonder and you can be like, okay, well, I guess that's that. And you can quit if you'd like, or you can just do everything in your power to continue to build on whatever momentum that has given you and try to turn that into a career of people who care about so much more than just that one song. And that's been our goal for the longest time. And, you know, where this is now the 20th anniversary of uh, Teenage Dirtbag and the first Weedis record, actually. And, you know, we've just been continuing to do it the whole time. So at this point, we feel like we must be doing something right. Because if it was really just the one hit wonder, people would have probably stopped coming to see us a long time ago. Uh, is there anything uh, on the horizon for Weedis that people should get prepared for? I know that we're kind of in a weird state <laughs> as far as going to live events. That's kind of a, a non, non-guarantee. But uh, you did mention the 20-year anniversary. Is there anything on the horizon for Weedis? Yeah, uh, probably. Uh, <laughs> we had every intention, and I guess we still have every intention, of doing a whole bunch of touring this year because um, it is the 20th anniversary of the first album. We're also going to do a, a, a re-release of that record that's going to come out on vinyl. Uh, we're working on that from home right now. We were slash we are planning on touring kind of everywhere. I hope that that still happens at this point. Obviously, who knows? Um, by the time this episode airs, I don't even know where we're going to be at. I've heard everything from, I've heard everything from, it's just going to be two weeks to it's going until August. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know as well. Yeah. I, I would say that at this point, as soon as we can, we are planning on touring, um, to, uh, celebrate the anniversary of this record. And, and our intention was for that to be like late summer, early fall. Maybe it'll wind up being a little bit after that. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what what this all, what the future holds for us. But yeah, so keep an eye out. We are definitely going to be doing uh, a bunch of touring as soon as we can. And um, a new version, uh, uh, double vinyl of the first album that we are going to self-release later this year as well. All right. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Matt. And we will be back next week with another episode. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is produced by Matt Kelly as part of the Geekscape Network and hosted by Chris Fafalios of the bands Punchline, Pack, and Another Cheetah. You can hear Roller Coaster Smoke off the Punchline album Delightfully Pleased underneath me right now. Visit punchline.com for updates as well as news, merch, and upcoming tour dates. Let us know your thoughts on the show by emailing us at onehitthunderpodcast at gmail.com. And make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. We'll be back next week with another episode of One Hit Thunder. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. 
Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same so if that sounds cool you can listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com and i'll see you there